Hi, I'm Dave Ferguson, pastor of the Collegedale Church here on the campus of Southern Adventist University. Welcome to our podcast. Today we're going to explore the relevant words of Jesus Christ, how they relate to me, you, our lives. So, enjoy the message. Happy Sabbath to you. It is a delight to spend some time together with you in worship today as we continue our series, Voice. Today, only a boy. Right now, I'd like to invite you to turn to Psalm 8. If you don't mind turning to Psalm chapter 8, we're going to start in that first verse of Psalm chapter 8. Only a boy today. Only a boy. Uh, If you don't remember the song. It was uh, as a little guy, my name being David, by the way, uh, I always relate to this story. It'd be a little bit difficult for us to be um, tricky about where we're headed today. Only a boy named David. You remember that song? Uh, There was a group called the King's Heralds, and they would come and they would do concerts back in the day, and they would get to this song, Only a Boy Named David. And uh, I loved it very much, uh, and partly because of the bass singer who sang at the very end. But it went a little something like this, only a boy named David, only a little sling, only a boy named David, but he could pray and sing, you remember it, only a boy named David, only a rippling brook, even though scholars would tell us at that time of year, probably it was a very dry riverbed. Only a rippling brook, yes, thank you, Lord is right. Only a boy named David, but five little stones he took. Same scholars will tell you that sling stones usually were not little. They were usually about the size of a tennis ball, but five little stones he took. And then you know the next part. And one little stone went into the sling, and the sling went round and round. That's right. you got to do this. The sling went round and 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 round. And then what happens? One little stone goes into the air, and the giant comes. Now, this is the best part, because this is where the bass kicks in. And the giant came. Tum- yeah, I can't do it. I don't know. Ron, could you do it for us? Yeah, and the giant came tumbling, tumbling, tumbling down. Boom. Only a boy. Well, you've turned to Psalm chapter 8, and I'm going to invite you into that first verse. O oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. This psalm, believed to be written shortly following our story from 1 Samuel chapter 17, the story of David and Goliath, as David sings out, writes out of his heart's overflow from what has happened, only this boy named David. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. You have set your glory above the heavens From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. And when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, When I consider all that you have done and the power of your majesty, that we in our moments with the giants of our lives, that you stop all, that you pay attention to me, that you know my heart, that you understand the journey I'm on and stop to divert power to our lives 
Oh, what an amazing thing. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so today, we will juxtapose this majestic God with a little boy. Oh, probably not really a little boy, but some pre-adult, some maybe older teen, probably sub-20 years old, this boy David. So, let's bow our heads in prayer and ask God's guidance. Lord, would you unpack your Word, open up your Scriptures to us today, and give us some impulse, some compulsion into your path. Would you move us, shape us, make us today because of your presence? Not just us as individuals, but the movement of your family, would you please? In Jesus, we claim the promise of your presence through your Spirit. Amen. And amen. So you find your way there to 1 Samuel chapter 17, if you don't mind. 1 Samuel chapter 17. I don't know if you've had one of those kinds of days where you're suddenly in the middle of something you weren't planning on. It wasn't in your schedule at all. Everything was scheduled out. You knew how this was going to go, but then it doesn't go that way. It goes a whole new, different way. Sometimes wonderful, other times not so. He's standing in a tent. He's in the tent of the king, and he, in fact, feels a little bit vulnerable in this moment, I would have to suspect. It's kind of that the, the Lord of the Rings hobbit Sam who says, what kind of a tale have we fallen into? And here he is. His day wasn't supposed to go this way, but he's in front of the king, and he's made a pitch. He's given a suggestion, and then he's being evaluated based on that suggestion. I don't know if you've had a, another one of those moments where you're, you're under evaluation. Maybe you've been at a job interview, and uh, there have been questions. You're hopeful. You'd really like this job. And uh, people are kind of sitting around a table, maybe listening to you, asking further questions, follow-ups, and looking at you, and you know what's going on. They're trying to decide, are you worth it? Are you a good choice? Should we pick you or not? And it feels very vulnerable. Maybe you've been in a classroom and a teacher has chosen to evaluate the students publicly. And uh, how many of you have had that experience? That can be a little bit challenging, feel extra vulnerable, especially if you've struggled a little bit with the assignment. Maybe you weren't even fully on top of it. Or how about that moment when you ask her out, and you're trying to summon all the courage, and, and, uh, and you just come out with it. I'm just wondering if, you, if you'd be interested in going out to uh, maybe to get a bite to eat, and, and she says in response, I'm sorry, I'm busy, and you, I didn't even tell you when we were, that's awkward. We've each one of us been in moments of evaluation, and David has this moment before King Saul, and the king responds to the pitch and the plea and the suggestion from David. The king responds in this way, pardon me. He says in that 33rd verse, you are not able to go. You're not the one. Your plan isn't good enough because you are only a boy. Again, he had not been there at the start of the day. He journeyed there to bring 
water, bread, cheese to his brothers, the three oldest who are at war with Saul. He has come to just serve them. He's kind of the, the water boy. He's beneath the team. He's not really on the group. He's but the day hasn't gone as planned. He stands in front of the king now and is being told, you're not, you're not the one. You're, you're, not, you're not good enough. So if you back up, what you're going to find on this dusty, warm day are two armies that are parked, camped, have been so for quite some time, about six weeks, on two plateaus that face one another, separated by a ravine where in the wet season water would rush through, but not right now. The Philistines are on the one embankment, and the Israelites are on the other, and they're kind of stuck there. Every day out will come this giant hulking man. The Bible will say he's about nine feet tall. Well, nine feet, nine in, well, round it up, ten feet tall. By the way, if you're curious about it, this story has prominence in this book. It's at the center of the book. It's the longest single story of a, of a singular battle. More is shared about the enemy than typical. The enemy himself in Goliath will have more to say than any other enemy in the Old Testament out of his own mouth, and there will be wild and interesting descriptors of what he's wearing, what he's carrying, all sorts of things. About a 125-pound breastplate. He has a big, huge spear with a 15-pound ball of steel to a point at the top of it. He's wearing metal girdings on his legs. He is, well, scholars would say to us, even as big as Goliath is, he's dressed not actually to run around, but to intimidate you look at what's going on there, and he is huge. And I don't know what kind of resonation comes out of the throat and the mouth of Goliath, but every morning, every day, he comes to that valley floor, and he begins to yell at the enemy. Send out your man! Who's your man? Send him out. Send him out. You see, not usually in Semitic countries, but in some Philistines, for instance, they had this approach that they might take where instead of just clashing in battle, they would send out a champion for a one-on-one -on -one fight. And so here in the Scriptures, they send out their champion. It is Goliath, this ten-foot-tall creature clad in metal. And he begins to bellow, send out your man. Interestingly, the word in Hebrew that's translated here, champion, literally would read the one who stands between. And so in that moment, steps forth Goliath, standing between, calling out. Have you had that? Today, yesterday, if you haven't, sometime soon, there's going to be something you long for, something you desire, maybe something you deserve. And yet there will be a hurdle between. Something stopping you, something making your dream just disappear into thin air. Something that crushes a relationship. Something that stops you from being able to get where you think you want to go. A Goliath, a giant, a ten-foot wall 
of metal standing in between. And isn't it true, so often those things that stand between us and the successes we imagine, they're taunting. It's not just that they block us, but they speak that we are not enough, that we never will be, that you're undeserving, that you aren't going to matter. Incidentally, as you know the story, why does Israel have a king? Because they asked for one. Why did they ask for a king? Well, because in the 10th chapter of 1 Samuel, they're kind of concerned about how things are going and that they would have a leader like the other countries in particular to battle back this one particular group of enemies, the Philistines. And so here they are on this particular day, standing on, the, getting, getting themselves ready as they go out to war, sounding the battle cry, and then the voice of the giant comes cascading across the chasm, and they hear the taunting, I defy you this day, send out your champion. Is there no one there in Israel? And of course, everyone's mind is reeling, going back to the question, do we not have a giant in our land? The Bible will say that standing head and shoulders taller and above any of his countrymen is one named Saul. Only a boy. That's all it is, only a boy. He doesn't have pedigree. He's not strong enough, smart enough, old enough, experienced enough. As I look around our family today, I wonder who God is looking at right now saying, you are what I have in mind for my next move. What we know is God chooses and loves to work with the small, with the insignificant, with the broken, with the battered, with those who aren't so sure. He loves to use the unpredictable, to do something big. And maybe the next move of God will require you. And if you feel a little uh, overwhelmed, not able, then maybe you're perfect for what God has in mind. Because He's not always that fond of using the giants in the land. Even Israel's giant. It is a sad truth and reality in the course of 1 Samuel 17 that you will only find Israel's giant in one place. That's in the home office. He's going to be back in the tent the whole time. We don't read of him anywhere else. He's watching what happens from a distance. Not only that, if you check up on and check in on how he's feeling, verse 11 of the 17th chapter says, On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Here God's anointed is. He's setting the tone. He's the leader. He's back in the tent. They come out to kind of, you know, get themselves in line and in order at the chanting of Goliath, and their leader is nowhere to be found. Their giant is quivering back in the tent. Well, it's into this scene that David steps. It's into this story he has fallen. As he arrives in this particular morning, having left very early to make his way to that valley floor, and then to that encampment where they've been for six weeks. I don't know if you've been around a group of 
soldiers for six weeks running and what they might do. There probably are street signs and you can, you can uh, get the map for where everybody is located like I did when I went to Oshkosh and went to find our pathfinders. Street after street after street, probably about 100 to 120,000 soldiers, about twice the size of Oshkosh, for those of you that have been there. David finally finds his brothers and plunks down. About that time, he hears the giant, and everybody quakingly, slowly, starts getting ready to go down to the valley floor to get into their battle positions. What a sad vision it is to see the shaking fear of God's people. I don't know what giants you perceive or what we've been talking about most recently that you've been picking up on, but maybe, maybe, just maybe, there is deliverance for us and maybe it comes through the unpredicted. Maybe somebody just like this boy. <clears throat> well, he's, he's arrived with the with the bread and the loaves, and now he asks around, what's happening? What is going on? Well, he just keeps coming out. He keeps coming out and taunting us, and nobody knows quite what to do. Ah, well, is there, uh, maybe there's no reward. Ben yes, there is a reward. The king has offered a reward. The reward goes something like this. First of all, we'll give you treasure, and then second of all, you'll marry the king's daughter, and third of all, your family, anybody with your last name, will never again pay taxes in the country. Whew. So that's, that's pretty massive. That's pretty major. I read that as the father of two daughters. And, uh, uh, okay. Well, then clearly there must be hanging around. Somebody's doing tryouts. You can't just let anybody go on attacking, right? No, there's no one. Eliab, David's oldest brother, comes to David. You, you recognize this? Do you remember this? In the 28th verse of this chapter, Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men about this situation. He burned with anger at him, and he asked, well, why have you come down here, and with whom did you leave those few little sheep in the wilderness, Davy? Go back home. You're only a boy. And by the way, for those with less experience, for the young leader here who would step up and step out and maybe naively have an idea they put forward, and you get some criticism. I, I've noticed that it happens to me, it happens to you. When we get criticism in the people of God, we are tempted to throw down our things and walk off. All right, so if we're going to get some criticism around here, that's not Christian. I'm leaving. I'm out. And I don't think we should really be proud of Eliab's response. It is predictable, though, that someone, when you step up and you have ideas, someone is probably going to tell you why that's not going to work. I mean, we tried it back in 64. <laughs> However, I plead with those of you young or inexperienced or willing finally to step up and step in, would you take on the character of David in this story? Because here's how it reads... Eliab says this to him, I know you're conceited. I know. He's actually attacking his character. Hurtful stuff. But rather than wander off, David asks him a question or two, and then in verse 30 it says, he then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. Uh, I want to say these two things. One, church family, we need to protect our young 
men and women who are ready to step forward in leadership. We need to help protect them because somebody is likely going to take on the character of Eliab and just crush someone's spirit of willingness if we're not careful. But for that young leader, I ask you not to cop out and give up, but to have the spirit of David, which goes a little something like this. Why isn't anyone attacking the giant? Eliab says, I know your heart. You are, you're just conceited and full of yourself. And David essentially goes, okay, well, is there anybody else who can tell me why no one is attacking the giant? What is happening here? Keep on, keep on, don't give up, don't let go, don't go away, please. I would just say to you, if you have a little bit of a disturbance in your heart of what you see going on in the world, or even more, in God's family that causes you some level of discouragement, your best bet is to stay and chip in, not to leave and let it crumble. I plead with you, if you're disturbed at all of what's going on in the church, would you step up and define what the church is, please? Well, he does. And somehow, little by little, frustratingly to some others probably, David finally is brought into the tent of the king because he won't let it go. He won't stop. What an interesting promise that is. You keep at it, you keep at it, and sooner or later you get to the spot where you can actually ask the question, who's going? Why is no one, why are you still in here, by the way? I tell you what, <laughs> tell you what, I got a great plan for you. Here's the plan. Here's the plan. You find it there in the 32nd verse. David says to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and your servant will fight him. Are you hearing it in the right tone? In steps David. There's the king. There's his general. There's the armor bearer. Other consultants and David steps in. <coughs> so, ah, uh, let no man, sorry, let me start that off. Let, let no one lose heart. Because <laughs> I will fight the giant. <laughs> Reminds me a little bit of a commercial I saw years and years and years ago. It's for the NAACP. And, and scholarships for college. And in this particular commercial, there was a young family seated at a kitchen table with their son, clearly about college age, and they are breaking the news that something has occurred that has tapped their finances out, and he's not going to get to go. He can't go to college. Around the corner spins the camera, and you see what must be this young man's little brother huddled there on the steps trying not to be seen or heard, listening in, and he gets this concerned look at hearing his brother's not going to get to go to college, and then an idea comes over him, and he jumps up, scrambles up the stairs into what must be his bedroom, grabs a desk chair and pulls it over to the closet, and he climbs up on the chair and gets to the top of the, and reaches up onto a shelf in the closet and pulls something down quickly. You can just see a blur. He rushes down the stairs back into the kitchen and splashes his little piggy bank across the table. And he says, there, now you can go. Have no fear. I will fight the giant. Oh. That is so cute. 
What must it have been like in that tent in that moment? <clears throat> oh, neat. Oh, that's, that's interesting. But you are just a boy. And David doubles down on it. He said, whoa, 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 whoa. Not so fast because I'm a shepherd too. <laughs> so I've been... I've been taking care of sheep. But no, 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 you don't seem to understand. See, we were under attack by a bear, and, and I, I took the bear out. We were under attack by a lion, and I grabbed the lion by the hair and slew it. You read David's grand plan, his pitch. In verse 37, he says, see, see, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. If you, were, if you had put up some, like a storyboard of this, what he's saying is, see, see here's, the, here's the lion, and, and then, then there's another one of a, of a dead lion, and then there's the bear, and then there's the one of the dead bear, and then there's the giant, and in the picture of the giant, as the words go, you, he, God will rescue me from his hand. I will be in those meaty paws of the ten-foot giant. He will have his hands around my neck, and he'll be about to crush me like a little bug. And then God will step in and rescue me. <laughs> Are you comfortable with this plan? I just recommend, next time you have an idea, you just wander into that group of people who get to decide, maybe me, for instance, going to our church board, and just lay it out there. Say, look, okay, so we've got this plan, and the truth is nobody seems to like it, <laughs> uh, and we don't have money for it, but that's okay. Nobody else is interested in signing up. It's going to look like a dismal failure, everybody. That's just what my prediction as I look at this is it's going to be horrific, and then God's going to step in, and it's going to be a miracle. Let's vote. But this little boy seems in this moment to understand who he's talking about. It is the Lord, our Lord. How magnificent is he? And I don't even know how to explain why, but he could be creating galaxies. And instead, he's here in this tent. And he cares about us, and it is his name the giant defies. Not mine, not yours. And so it will be in his name that I will go out. Keep in mind, this boy, this young man, this teenager, is just a couple of chapters earlier, was anointed. And you might have thought he was anointed as king, which he was, and he knew that, which he didn't. All he knows is that the prophet of God that he's heard all these things about shows up at his home, he has a feast, he, he has a sacrifice, and he starts calling in his brothers and he's looking at them. This is what he's heard anyway, because he wasn't there. Until finally, he gets called in from the pasture. The prophet wants to see you. He comes in and with a look of mischief, possibly, Samuel says, why don't you kneel down right here, young man? And begins to pour oil over his head. And he realizes all he knows is he's been anointed for something. 
He doesn't know this is something they would do for the priesthood, but he's not like the man who anointed him who was taken and given to stay with the priest. No, 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 he was sent back into the pasture. He doesn't know. He doesn't know what he's anointed for. Could it be, as he stands in that tent that day, could it be he's been anointed for this moment singularly? He doesn't know. Maybe even he's been anointed to give his life in the name of God. He doesn't know. He's used to caring for the sheep. And then every once in a while, Dad will come and will ask his son, which one is the best one? Well, (laughs) it's this one right here. Bring it to me, son. And that lamb will be taken, and it will be slaughtered and slain and sacrificed. He doesn't know what's going to happen today. All he knows is that the name of God ought to be stood up for. So I'm going, he says, let me, let me go. I want to go. Let me do this. And Saul, by the way, head and shoulders above the rest of his countrymen, maybe head and shoulders and torso over this young man, says yes. And I fail to believe that it's because he thinks God is with this young man and clearly God will be victorious. No, no. Maybe if he did, you'd find him standing beside David at that dry creek bed picking out stones. No, no. All we know is he stays back in the tent for all that we read. I have to wonder if he isn't getting ready for slavery. Well, next thing that happens is he starts grabbing his armor, his clothing, and starts to call for his armor bearers to put his armor onto David. Remember, these two, there's a size difference here. And now he's got a tunic on, and he's got a breastplate on, and there's a helmet that's somewhere there, and he's got leggings that they're strapping on, and he's, the Bible says he isn't used to them. You know, with more practice, he's there looking out the armhole of a breastplate. Pretty sure with a little practice, this would be perfect. I'm not sure we have time right now. Why is it that when once we start to be willing to give away opportunity and authority to go in God's name, we so regularly decide that if you're going to go, let me dress you in my practices. Let me put you in my armor. Do you know two terrible things happen when we insist someone else fight in my armor? Two terrible things. First of all, they have to take off the armor God gave them to fight in mine. And secondarily, think about it. The king of Israel has given away his armor. He has no intention nor capacity to join the fight. Ah, young leader, when you step up, You need to go in your armor, and the Bible says God gives you unique armor that is all your own. So David says, I cannot go in these. I haven't haven't practiced. And by the way, I think I'll just take God-made things. I've got this stick I'm pretty fond of, and uh, 
mean, it's really sturdy. I've done a lot of stuff to it. And uh, it just fits my hand perfectly. I've kind of done some carvings. It's personal. I know, it doesn't look like much, but it's important to me. And By the way, did you know God made the stick? Huh. And I think I'm just going to go down to that dry, dusty creek bed, and I'm going to find some of the stones that God has washed and worn into just the right shape. Because I've been killing time out there with the sheep, and I kind of know which ones to pick. When God calls you, go in the armor He provides for you. Know this, others, especially those who have been in charge for a while, will struggle, myself included, with wanting you to do it the way we've done it. But by the way, if the way we've done it all along has been working so well, wouldn't we be home by now? Maybe we need your stick in the hands of God. And so David exits the tent, given the blessing of the king, and he wanders down by the creek bed. And as he gets down to the creek bed, <clears throat> he picks up five stones. I've wondered about that before. Why five? Is he not that great a shot? Is he thinking, by the way, tennis ball size, and as, it, as the Bible will say, when he hits the giant, it sinks into his skull. I mean, this is not a PG-level uh, attack that's about to happen. Uh, so why five stones? Maybe he's not sure how this whole thing is going to go or about his shot. Who knows? But... Some scholars suggest it could be not that he's too worried about how accurate he is, but in fact, Goliath has four brothers who are also giants, and he's not sure. He didn't plan to get here today. He's not sure how many giants are going to need to go down. Well, his wobbly voice with his stick and stones start to approach Goliath. The Goliath, first of all, doesn't much notice it. Then he sees somebody coming from a bit of a distance, so he starts to get nearer, nearer. With his shield-bearer, he's getting nearer to this young man until he can finally see. Verse 42, he looks David over, and he sees that he was little more than a boy. He's only a boy! Little more than a boy. And he, he starts to get a little bit ticked off by this. Well, you think I'm a dog that you can come at me with a stick? Not even any proper weapons? What kind of a thing? What are you all playing at here? As David keeps approaching a little further. And then that anger turns to humor, and he begins to laugh at this boy and starts to call out to him, yeah, come on, come on, come here. I tell you what, the birds will eat your flesh. You won't even have a proper burial. Say goodbye. Interestingly enough, everything about the warfare Goliath is prepared for requires that the person come right there and be in a hand-to-hand -hand grappling match because he can't move very fast. And everything about how David is equipped is meant for distance. Could it be that the things God has been doing in your life will be perfectly suited for the battles he's going to ask you to fight? Well, there he is, and one little stone went into the sling, and there's a belly laugh on the part of the giant, and I don't know if that causes something to rock back and expose a forehead, but there's a whir in the air, and everybody is transfixed. Eliab is going, oh, no. 
and thump. Yeah, cartoonish in my mind, I see his eyes kind of trying to look up to that spot. As he goes to his knees. And then dust billows over the fallen body of Goliath in that one moment. And David rushes across the creek and then does the thing we don't sing about. Right? I mean, it's a little longer verse. And one little stone went into the air, and the giant came tumbling down. And David ran across the creek, jumped up on his chest, pulled out his sword, cut off his head, and said, Hey! (laughs) But let's not be confused. The giant is not injured. The giant is not asleep. The giant is done. And in that moment, with the raising of the proof, the paralyzed people of God rush which, by the way, the enemy was not planning to play by the rules, this whole, we'll put out our champion, you put out your champion, and whoever wins, they take all. No, no, no. They don't give up. They're now fighting as they're trying to get back home. It is 13 miles from that valley to the borders of Philistia, and they rush their way, fighting that whole time as far as they can go, and some of them get across the line and into Philistia. And the Israelites, who have chased them for 13 miles, run the 13 miles back to loot and raid their tents. God's paralyzed people at the actions of only a boy. Now our marathon runners for God. Young leader, you may think you are too little, too small, unworthy, not experienced enough, naive, or maybe you don't. Maybe you come in confident. Never fear. For I will. I wonder what victory God has in mind and how a victory in the name of Jesus at your hands could unleash the people of God. We all stand around sometimes complaining about the giants. Won't anybody do anything? Won't anybody do anything? Won't anybody do anything? And God is waiting to do something. But He loves only a boy. He loves only a little girl. He loves that older person who's been told you're done now. Step back. The one who is never picked on the team. The person who doesn't have the experience. The person who is flawed. The person who has met with this real trouble recently. He loves to take those people you can think of no other explanation for the victory except that God was here. The giant tumbles and falls. As we finish, there's a little section that I'd like to visit. I don't know how many times I've read this story, sung about it, children's books, that sort of thing, or even preached on it. And miss this part. It's a little bit odd. I'm just be honest with you. It's a little bit weird. So the Bible in the 55th verse of chapter 17 says, As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistines, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Who is this? He's watching from his tent. He's just been prepared to give away his own armor. i got to figure he's packing up for slavery. 
And as this young man goes out, and as this stone is in the air, as a giant falls, whose son is this? And that should strike us a little bit oddly, because just in the chapter before, after David is anointed, King Saul is deeply troubled. He has given over his heart uh, to evil. He has pushed God out of his life in his leadership, and he is disturbed and distressed. And somebody says, you know what you need? You need a good musician, a poet, somebody who can soothe your heart. And I know just the guy. He lives in the household of Jesse. Let's go get him. And David comes, and they bring him, and he sings, and he plays, and he writes music, and he's at the ready whenever he's having one of these disturbed and troubling moods. David is called upon, and it makes a difference. And it says even that Saul loved David for this. And now, at the end, a chapter later, just one chapter later, and he's going out, and you'd think this is a moment you'd really kind of focus on who that is. He's dressing him in his armor. Who is this again? Some scholars say that it's actually two authors, two stories, just kind of being jammed together. Others say, ah, not so fast. This is too well-crafted, too purposeful. It's too much a fulcrum point of this whole book. Nah, it doesn't wash. Could it be instead that a little bit of time has passed and a little boy David is now a teenager David and there's been just enough change, maybe some acne or who knows what. And beyond all of that, Saul cares most about Saul. So that when you read Saul loved David, you read Saul loved how he felt because somebody served him. Oh, be careful of leaders who don't understand that people are at the core of every good thing we might ever do. Not things, and not how we make ourselves feel, or how they could be useful to make me feel. So here it comes, down to the end, and he doesn't seem to even know, this is the kid who's been playing music in my house and making me feel better. And then there's this, the weirdest part. Battle is over. Verse 57, as soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner, the general, got a hold of David and brought him in before Saul. With David still holding the Philistine's head. Battle is over. This is not a small head, by the way. Sorry about that. Battle is over. He has lifted the head. And this is, this is a throwaway parenthetical comment. So David comes into the tent of the king because the king didn't seem to really focus on He was pretty much checked out through the whole story. And he sees him go and attack. Yeah, bring him in. Who is this? Because I promised a daughter in marriage. I'm going to need to know who his father is. So who is this guy? Uh, you called you called for me? Yeah, it was quite a battle. Thirteen miles and thirteen miles and it's, Why in the world is he carrying Goliath's head? We don't absolutely know the answer, but I will tell you it strikes me that in the moment that we have a David and Goliath 
Goliath story, which is now what we call those moments when the underdog wins, right? It's a David and Goliath situation. Isn't it true? As soon as David kills Goliath, he's no longer David. He's suddenly become Goliath. Have you noticed it? When the underdog wins, he's no longer the underdog. It's like 10 seconds and then they're full of themselves. And David spends the day. Hey. Unbelievable, huh? No, yeah, that was me. I know you were a long way back, but uh, he won't even set it down lest somebody else pick it up and get the credit. By the time this story is over, David will go to Jerusalem with the head of Goliath to make sure everybody knows. And he will take his sword and his spear and his weapons. Remember, this is the kid who said, I don't need those man-made weapons. I'm going with my stick and my stones. Oh, cool. Victory. Check it out. Got weapons. It must be amazingly difficult for God to understand and decide whether he can trust me with any form of victory. Because I will flip it so fast into me. Check me out. And you will too. Oh, that we could have a heart of humility. We need to, we need to caution each other. We need to hold each other accountable. This, I, I'll hear myself say it. Yeah, well, at my church, we, What? And somehow I co-opt and claim for myself that which is God's, even those victorious moments. He loves to work through weak people. We should not get full of ourselves about it. It'll be six verses later in the 18th chapter. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands. And then there's only a little boy. No, it's not how it reads. Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands. Check it out. David has become Goliath. Oh, that we would offer ourselves to this God, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name, and that we would hold our ego in check and retain our understanding. We are still just a little girl. You're still just a little boy. We are still the broken things God chooses to change the world with. And oh, what a privilege and a pleasure. May we hold true to the humility that goes with walking in the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Would you pray? Lord, thank you very much for this story. It's powerful and it's big and it teaches us so many things. One of which it reminds us is that in fact we are so, so close. At every moment we are so close to turning everything into a self-centric idea. Forgive us, bless us with your Spirit, humble ourselves, help us to have people around us who will continually remind us of who we are in the grand scheme of who you are. 
But Lord, also we take power and motivation from this story to know you are calling us out from the tent to step out and step up for you, to be willing to even sacrifice our lives on your behalf. So bless your calling and cause among us. Every young or older leader, every little boy, teenager, 20-year-old, mid-career, going down the last stretch of their career or retiree, Lord God, would you call us out into that place, dangerous as it is, where the giants are, that we might experience things that unmistakably can only be done by your presence. So bless us in the name of Jesus.